Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries, here to tell you how they built their brands. And also a big thanks to this week's show sponsor, iTrolley.ie, who have come on board to sponsor this episode. iTrolley is an online marketplace that offers thousands of products and a broad range of services. And they're down at Lyland, and you can find out more about them on iTrolley.ie. Welcome to episode 11 of the 24 Stories podcast. This week, we're going into the world of the arts, and um, I'm delighted to be joined by Trevor Ryan, who's the director of Montfort's. Trevor, I think I first came across you, if I'm right in saying, I think it was around the late 90s. I was after getting into singing myself, so people might know that I'm actually a trained tenor, but uh, this guy uh, was the MC of a show up in the fucking crane. And I sang Grease is the Word and you introduced me. And I think that was the very first time I met you. Well, my, really? I yeah. actually can't recall that at all, really. Yeah, so that's that. Because yeah. that distinctive voice that you have, <laughs> you know, I'd say you were maybe, I don't know, were you in college or only starting off work at the time? I don't know. The 90s. Uh, so, uh, oh, no, I would have been, I would have been probably late 20s, early 30s at that stage. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely was working. You were definitely yeah, working. Yeah. So I'm guessing acting and drama was always part of your life in those early days like how did you get into that world I suppose my introduction to the arts would have been panto my parents would have taken me to the Christmas panto every year and the opera house yeah the opera house yeah so that's probably my that would have been my only outing theatrically once a year because my parents um, my dad was very sporty yeah my mom, um, I suppose, didn't have a particular affinity for the arts or whatever it is. But, yeah. you know, the panto would have been an annual tradition for myself and my brother. And I do remember watching the likes of Bill O'Connell and Paddy Comerford up on the stage and, and saying to my mother on various different occasions that I wanted to be up there with them, yeah. uh, that I wanted to be on that stage. I was mesmerized by, yeah. um, I suppose, just by the magic of theatre. Um, and then I went to... St. Columbus Boys School in Douglas yeah. and the Monfords started after school classes there um, I think when I was in fifth class and I joined so I must have been what 11 maybe and yeah. that would have been the start then of my relationship and association with the Monfords which I've obviously maintained pretty much ever since ever since as you became a teenager you went into secondary school did you keep it up because sometimes it can be hard a, a boy in particular you know you're expected to kind of play lots of sports and, and maybe drama not so much. Yeah, I mean, I was actually, you know, funnily enough, I was excellent at high jump and the long jump. And I yeah. represented my school at the city sports and so yeah. on. And, you know, I never came first, but I certainly got a second and third. That was probably the extent of my involvement in sports. But yeah. I was an outgoing, funny guy. I was kind of like the class clown. I okay. made people laugh. Yeah, yeah. So I was never kind of ridiculed or, you know, uh, ostracized because I was involved in drama. Because you, know, you could make people laugh yeah, and people loved that. absolutely. And I very much embraced it and I loved talking about it. I never felt embarrassed by yeah. it. And yeah, look, I kept my association up with Montford's. So I still continued going to classes. And I think back around 1980, I must call it 100, I think 1984 or whatever, at that point, I was asked to join the senior Montford's. And that's like, you know, going, for, that's like being asked to join the premiership. Okay, you yeah. know, it would have been Tuesday night rehearsals mm-hmm. in, in their old studio on Leachman Street and you know when you're invited in when you're asked to join the senior Montfort's I mean you've kind of feel as if you've graduated to the big time at that point so once you go in there you become involved in the shows Um, and the first show that I would have done would have been Camelot which they staged in the Opera House as I said back in I think 1984 and that ran for a couple of weeks and I was just enthralled by the whole thing and just totally consumed by it 100% I mean the show would start every night at 8 o'clock I'd come into the theatre about 6 I'd be in the dressing room two hours before anybody else, literally just sitting there doing nothing, but just delighted to be involved yeah. in theatre and sitting inside in the opera house, which was, you know, like the Holy Grail for me. It was yeah. just this wonderful cavern of of, yeah. of magic and mystery. Probably like scoring a goal in a final when you get on that stage and you get the, the round of applause. And... Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I must have been 14 or 15 and that was a real incredible show. And the like had never been seen in Cork before. Okay. I mean, I remember the opening scene or whatever. They had this silhouette uh, of the the castle in the in the distance, and it lit up. They had like hundreds of of, of little um, LED lights on it, 
very prevalent these days now. We put them on our Christmas trees mm. and hang them up in our garden or whatever. But back in the day, I mean, these things weren't available at all. And for an effect that today could, could be very easily um, replicated back then, it, it was magical for yeah. the audience. And yeah. I remember the round of applause that that got every single night. And then as we all came out to take our bow, I mean, again, you know, I was in the junior chorus or whatever. I had very little to do in it. But walking out for the curtain call and taking my bow, you know, with other guys and girls of a similar age to myself and the audience on their feet and people cheering and roaring and the hair standing on the back of mm. your neck. I mean, that feeling is incredible. At that stage then, did you kind of think in your own mind, I'd love a career full time in this, like I want to be an actor or? I did. Absolutely. That's all I wanted to do. And the plan was to audition for drama school in London. Okay. And head away. But again, I didn't look at the practicalities of it in terms of how I was going to finance it. Mm. Um, did I have the actual talent to, to warrant a place? Yeah. But yes, yeah, certainly it was in the back of my head that that's the kind of the, the, the path that I wanted to go. Mm. So I suppose the years went on. I still continued to perform with the Monfords. And, you know, I was kind of getting other gigs or other parts and other plays outside of Monfords. Uh, then I think I was in fifth year or sixth year or whatever I could manage to get a part-time job in De Lacey House which is what's it called? The Voodoo uh, Rooms The home. Voodoo Rooms yeah. yeah yeah. So I was there for a couple of years and that was I suppose my first taste of money okay. um, now albeit you know a handful yeah, a couple of shillings at yeah. the end of the week or whatever but it was great that I was earning my own couple yeah. of bob So I did the leaving cert and I didn't pursue it I didn't I didn't I, I felt I didn't want to go to college just yet I felt at that point that I didn't have the necessary drive to go to London and, you know, potentially train. And it's a very precarious industry. I mean, you can you, you, obviously you need lots of talent, but you need even more luck. Yeah. Um, because you never know when the next, where the next gig is coming yeah. from. My attitude was, I, I love it. I don't think I love it enough that okay. I want to, you know, put my parents under savage financial pressure yeah. for me to go to London. Because I suppose at that time, you were probably looking at fees in the round of about five or six thousand euros a year yeah. plus my accommodation and living expenses and my parents just didn't have that money so I took the year out and I just worked I worked in the Lacey House I loved the hospitality industry I loved again it, it, it's a kind of performing you're serving yeah. people um, yeah. you need to have that smile on your face all the time and I really enjoyed it I suppose something that and I know it sounds like a bit of a cliche but I've never been afraid of hard work and I haven't I think I get that from my parents in particular my dad who at 75 years of age is, even though he's he's retired, he still does a little bit of work up in Douglas Golf Club. And, yeah. you know, I mean, he's like a hare. He just never stops yeah. at yeah. all. So I worked there for for a year and they took me on full time. And then I decided that, yeah, I was ready to go to college. So I went to the CIT or the or Cork RTC um, at the time. And I did marketing and I did that for um, for three years or whatever. And I enjoyed college life. Again, I still kept up my association with theatre and drama. So we doing plays at the same time, doing the odd show here and there? I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There was always something. You know, certainly my 20s, I did an awful lot. Okay. Lots of straight drama, you know, a number of musicals. Mm. Uh, again, and, you know, just trying to manage kind of college life as well. Yeah. Then I suppose at the end of coming up close to the, the finish of my degree, we were a French, Sean McSivna and myself, we were, were good buddies in college. We were approached by Ger Scriven, who would have been the, the president of the CIT Students Union, to see if we were, would be interested in running for election in the Students Union. Okay. Um, Shawnee as the president and myself as the vice president. So, you know, we had, a, you know, we had an interest in student politics and, and student welfare, whatever. So we ran and we both won. And then Shawnee got a job in the airport uh, the following year in airport police, I still had things that I wanted to do in the college. Yeah, yeah. So I got re-elected president for a second year and then I ran a third year and got re-elected a third time. So you stayed um, in the college for a, for I a did. period yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was lots that I, you know, student welfare really I was very interested in. I yeah. mean, it, it, the college itself, you know, I mean, when you look back at the, the revolutionary days in the 60s and 70s when the students' union were pulling out the students for yeah. a march or a protest yeah. at a drop of a hat. We did very little of that. We were able to, you know, sit around the table with the governing body or with the principal at the time, Patrick Kelleher, um, who again was a very amenable um, and understanding guy. And, you know, if we had any issues, we were able to kind of trash them out. Yeah. So I kind of felt, you know, the, the students' union prior to to me getting involved, I thought was all a little bit loose and a bit disjointed administration wise. And that was something that I really wanted to tighten up. I wanted it to be a very tight 
well-structured organization. I suppose the policies, the, the administration work, everything was kind of in place so that whoever came in, whether they were going to be a good president or a bad president, you know, an ineffectual president or whatever, that the organization would still run correctly and properly, that yeah, there couldn't, yeah. couldn't be any, yeah. you know, I suppose misappropriation of funds or that, you know, the, the work that we had done would continue on. Mm. So I was proud of the three years that I was there. That gave you a great profile as well, though, I'd say, Trevor, did it? It did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, being involved in theatre and I suppose the Monfords and uh, the Students' Union back in the day, whatever. Yes, I mean, it did give me a great profile. I suppose as myself, I would be a little bit shy. You know, yeah. I mean, I have no problem going out on the stage mm. and being a character or whatever mm. it is. But, you know, interviews like this, this is OK today been asked to do things for TV or whatever where it's lis- literally you know a half a minute segment or whatever I kind of tend to shy away from things thinking like that thinking too a much bit. about it yeah, yeah thinking a bit too much about it yeah 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 but yeah I suppose from there I got offered a job in the bank in the student branch of AIB and I did that for 18 months it was the, the worst most awful 18 months of my life because I don't have a head for figures. And it destroyed your soul, I'd, I'd say, Oh, it? it did. There was no... You, you, you were talking about this idea of being front of house, hospitality. Absolutely. That, yeah, that really yeah. doesn't come into the bank. No, no offence to anyone from the bank listening. No, but. not at all. No, no. I worked with some lovely people. But again, you know, I, I mean, I literally used to go to bed on a Sunday night going, I can't believe I've got to go in here now in the morning. I suppose what happened next was I was doing... Uh, there was a friend of mine, Pat O'Regan, and he used to be a producer of ads for yeah. 96FM. Do you know Pat? Yeah, Pat yeah. with the voice of... And yes. People listening would know him as the voice for the Aldi ad at the moment. That's the guy. Yeah. yeah. He talks about uh, Ebenezer Scrooge or yeah. Eb- Ebenezer Scrooge or whatever yeah. it is, or yeah, yeah. Kevin the Carrot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I used to do some ads for Pat. So Pat was working for 96FM at the time. So I would get, you know, calls on an ad hoc basis are you free at your lunch do you want to come in and do an ad for me this kind of stuff you know so my lunch break I would head in and I would do ads you know when we'd kind of generally shoot the breeze how are you getting on you enjoying the bank and I was like I'm not really you know I need a change I need to find something else I said look you know I can't be creative in there marketing is my thing I've got the drama background as well I can't exploit either in the bank you know I don't have a head for figures I need to get the hell out of there so at the time, Michael Durley of Shandon Travel, he was um, doing his own voiceovers for his own ads and just happened to be up in the studio one day with Pat. Um, and again, they were shooting the breeze. And Pat was saying, you know, do you have anything new happening? You know, what's going on in Shandon Travel? He said, do you know what it is now? He said, I've got a new business, a new business idea for a student travel company, but I don't have anyone in-house that I feel would be the right fit for it. Um, so I'm kind of looking for someone, if you know of anyone, so I got a phone call from Pat, you know, I suppose later on that day. And he told me that of Michael Dorley, about Shandon Travel, I hadn't heard of it either. Um, and again, I had no experience or no, uh, I had no affinity to travel at all. So he said that, look, this guy is looking for someone to develop a new product or a new business for him. You know, would be interested in having a talk with him? I said I would. And he called me in. And actually, this, the way all this happened as well was when I was in the bank um, at that time, I was kind of like a yellow pack worker in terms yeah. of they would keep me on for about 10 months of the year, leave me go for two so that, you know, I didn't have any entitlements yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know. So I was finishing up that Friday, made the phone call to Michael Dorley. He asked me would I come in and have a chat with him on the Saturday, which I did. And he offered me the job um, that day. I started in Shandon Travel on the Monday and I had obviously two months to make up my mind as to whether or not I was going to go back to the bank okay. or not. I think I, I think I was in with Shandon about two weeks and I made the call and I said, guys, I ain't coming back. Thanks so much. Yeah. I enjoyed it, but I'm out of here. Essentially what it was, was Michael was a very intelligent, a very creative, a very innovative businessman. Yeah. He had started Shandon Travel back in 1974 with one office. And this was the golden age of travel, you know, pre-internet. He would have had his three Shandon travel shops, three West Cork travel shops, airport staff travel, say it travel, a couple of tour operations to South America and to India and to Dubai and a very um, lucrative French holiday center business, which would have done camping holidays and mobile home holidays to France, Germany, Spain, Italy and so on. Mm. And basically what he said to me was, I see a gap in the market. There is one player looking after J1 visas to America and I want to break that monopoly. I don't have time to do it myself. I've done the research. 
Yeah. I have a box here. I need to hand this over to someone. You know, are you interested in doing it? So I suppose I didn't have the travel background, but I didn't need to have the travel background. Yeah. He was looking for someone, I suppose, to, to bring this to market. Yeah. I had the connections in all the colleges around the country. You know, I had an in there straight away. Yeah, yeah. So it would have been easy for me to contact the likes of the students union in DCU or NUIG or whatever and say, guys, look, this is what we have. Can I come on campus? Can I talk to your students and to see if anyone is interested in traveling with us, you know, to America on a visa? So we started it quite late. I mean, ordinarily, um, students would travel out the beginning of June and they would be gone for three or four months. Um, so people normally, people would normally start booking around the first week of January. And as I said, use it, had the monopoly at that point. And their five or six thousand visas would have been gone instantaneously. There was, there was always the supply didn't meet demand. So we started very late. I think by the time we were ready to go, we would have been end of February. So I think everyone who was going at that point had their visa sorted. I think we got about 120, 130 that first year. And so we had literally just dipped our toe in it. So then in year two, we went up to 1,800. Year three, about two and a half thousand. Year four, 4,000 plus. And it just, it, it kept to grow after that. And then it obviously leveled off then after yeah, a while. Yeah. But, you know, we, we certainly broke the monopoly. Um, and we did it differently. I mean, I suppose the thing for me was I was very much the face of it initially. I mean, it started off quite small, but just like 100 or whatever. I did it from one desk the year after we opened a store, the first shop, next to that old pub. What was it again? Frankie's or where Soho was now. Oh, uh, Doyle's. Doyle's. That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's where we operated out of. And I think we're probably there for about two or three years. And then look, as the business grew, we went to the other side of Doyle's and that's where we, well, that's where they currently are now at 76 Grand Parade. So I suppose what worked for us was I obviously had the the contacts in the students' unions. Yeah. Uh, so it was easy for me in those first couple of years to get in, set up a stand, talk to the students. And I did that myself. Yeah. So I literally would pack my car on a Monday morning and I would drive to Athlone and then I'd go to Sligo the next day or I'd go to uh, Galway. So, I, you know, I'd go north, south, east, west. There was a couple of kind of innovation things that we had done at the time that that it hadn't done. I mean, we were the first people to introduce if you had failed your exam, there was insurance there to cover you to come back, to come back. Oh, yeah. Do your exam and go back out to the States. At the time, the only places that you could go to would have been New York, um, Boston and Chicago. We introduced the, the West Coast, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco. We opened all that up which became huge J1 hotspots. And did the students have to find their own work or, or did you kind of source some of that as well for them? Again, we tried to differentiate ourselves as much as possible from mm. using it and try and give, you know, a more all-rounded, comprehensive service. Yeah. So what we used to do is I had staff that specifically looked at sourcing jobs for students in the likes of Myrtle Beach, Wildwood, New Jersey, Cape Cod, Hyannis, places like that where we knew where the students were going. Yeah. So we were building up a database of, of contacts all the time. And again, once you signed up with us, then we gave you access to this kind of database. So you didn't. it wasn't a prerequisite at that time to have a job organized. Mm. But lots of students did before they went or they set up an interview knowing that they arrive on the 1st of June. They're walking into um, Maurice Perry Amusement Park on the 2nd and they've got their interview already lined up. Yeah. And certainly for the first couple of years when the numbers, you know, were manageable I would base myself in New York because that was the, the the main hub so I would meet all the students off the now again it, it's, it was very much a PR exercise but I would meet the students off the plane so they, they'd spread the word to the next year's cohort yeah, or whatever yeah exactly yeah. that look there was Irish guys out there I would yeah. have someone in in Chicago I would have someone in Boston so even though our sponsor company InterExchange would be looking after the likes of the bus and the overnight accommodation and the transportation and the orientation the following morning. Yeah. We just wanted to have, a, a, you know, a presence there as well. So once they got there, we didn't want people to, you know, have culture shock that, oh my God, you know, I, I'm a little bit overwhelmed here. There isn't an Irish voice or an Irish face yeah. that I can turn to. And that really worked for us. And we did that for a number of years. And did you stay there for a few weeks? or I did. Or? Yeah, I'd be there for about six weeks yeah. and I'd travel around. Yeah. Um, so we'd always have a kind of a hub where a student could drop in yeah. and talk to us or whatever it is. Um, I'm sure a few students got into trouble over the years as well that you had to sort things up for them. Did you? Hey, do you know, 
There probably was. Not an awful lot. I mean, Not, we'd, get, yeah. we'd get those photographs at the end of the, the summer from some landlords who'd say, look, they trashed it or whatever it <laughs> yeah. is. But, um, you know, thankfully, we didn't hear of anybody getting arrested or anyone getting into any serious trouble. You know, I think, by look, I went on a J1 myself. You know, we all did crazy things or yeah. whatever. But, you know, it's all, it's all hijinks and it's all done with the best of intentions. You know, we're not yeah. setting out to, yeah. you know, to trash a place or yeah. to cause mischief or whatever. Fun. Yeah, yeah. So that was developing. Did you shelve then the theatre for a while as that was growing? Because that became, I'd imagine, massive. I did, yeah. There would have been, I think, kind of my late 20s into my you know, mid-30s, mm. I did very little. Yeah. I really enjoyed the work. As I said, the product was handed to me. I had pretty much complete autonomy uh, on what I did. Mm. I mean, obviously, look, I would talk and liaise with Michael pretty much every day. But all the innovations, you know, the majority of them were mine. A lot of them were his, of course. But, it, you know, we had a blank page and I was very lucky and fortunate that I had such an incredible boss that trusted me with this product and it grew and it developed all the time and I really got such a buzz from it it was exciting the adrenaline I'd imagine yeah yeah yeah. you know so I got got a great buzz for years trying to develop the product and I suppose also develop the other side of the business so when the the J1 was one element and then we very much became known as specialists for gap year travel and people going to Australia or New Zealand for the year um, and all the kind of ancillary products that go with that, you know, from tax rebates and refunds, adding on accommodation packages, yeah. phone packages, SIM cards, things that you do that you yeah. never think about these days, you know, the yeah. things that are kind of taken for granted. So the the other side of the business grew, grew massively. And then we took a gamble and we opened in Dublin, we opened in Temple Bar. And at that time as well, what we were doing was this would have been pre-online booking. Yeah. So I think... It, in the first three years, we looked after all the business ourselves. It came in through the phone or via post or whatever it is. And then we decided to appoint a number of agents around the country. So wherever there was a university or a um, technical college, mm. we found a local travel agent that they would process bookings for us. Yeah. So the majority of them, you know, did reasonably well. You know, they were paid a commission. It was a nice commission. But the one that did exceptionally well for us was... Dublin University student travel and they were based um, in Trinity College. So they were bringing in hundreds and hundreds of booking for, bookings for us every year. So at that point, we kind of felt, OK, um, there's a really captive market in Dublin. Let's take a gamble and let's open an office in Dublin, which we did. Yeah. Right in the heart of Temple Bar. And again, that obviously would fulfill our, our, our J1 requirement. And obviously, you know, we were looking at around the world stuff and all the other stuff that we were doing as well. And it was reasonably successful. I mean, certainly for J1, I mean, we were doing tremendous numbers at the time. We were very much a thorn in Usit's um, side. And while we had grown the market for a couple of years, it kind of topped out after probably five or six years. So at that point, then we had to look at, you know, increasing our own market share and taking from the other guys, which, you know, we did. So after a couple of years, we were paying an enormous amount in rent and then things started to go online. So we decided, okay, look, the cash cow of the business was the J1 and we can we looked at everything and we said all oh, this can be done online so we closed the office in Dublin after I think about four years no we could have kept going it was washing its face it was doing reasonably well uh, but we felt you know the time was right now to shift everything online mm-hmm. um, and that worked for us thankfully we we wanted the first travel agents in Ireland to kind of go down that road in terms of booking engines for for flights cruising you know, I mean, we never developed anything ourselves. We bought yeah. something off the shelf, okay. you know, and it was, you know, it, it was wrapped with the Shandon Travel logo and stuff like that. For the J1, we built our own bespoke okay. booking engine. So that was kind of state of the art. And we, we refined it and developed it every year. And still the, the, the mechanics of it today, probably 20 years later, are very much the same, you know. But did you stop then having somebody in the States meeting people when they, like, did you pull back on that? Kind no, of we still, we still, I still insisted that all that happened that because happen. I really felt that that worked in our favor. And that was one of the, and what I also did was I ensured that everyone that we took on, everyone we employed, whether it was here in Ireland or who would work seasonally for us in the States, were all past J1ers. Because, I mean, it's grand to go in and say, okay, look, I, I want to book a J1. I want to go to New York or I want to go to Myrtle Beach or whatever it is. Yeah. The easy bit is filling out that application form booking a flight, organizing insurance. But the students, 
the students who are about to embark on a J1, they want the benefit of people's previous experience. How did you get on? What are the pitfalls? What do I need to look out for? How do I source accommodation? Where do I get a job? So, you know, I think like 10% of what the admin staff were doing were processing the booking. The other 90% of the time, they were giving the benefit of their J1 experience to the students. And I think that's what made us different as well from Use It. Because again, you were going into a store where you had someone who might have been, you know, in their 30s and 40s who, who, who had never done a J1. And you're asking questions like, you know, um, will I be able to find a job there? And they don't have those answers. So I think we were giving, you know, a fairly well-rounded service. As you said, the, the word went out that you were the best in the game, kind of in many ways, at it then. And, but it goes back to your, I suppose, the whole idea of networking. The fact that you had gone into the students' union, that probably played a massive role in your credibility throughout the country then, in terms of those colleges. It did. Well, there might have been some little kind of, you know, trepidation from, from some students' unions. Again, because I knew them all, yeah, they, le- they, they welcomed me and they welcomed the fact that there was competition. Mm. Because again, it was one company who had the monopoly on it, who could charge whatever the hell they wanted. And, you know, we made it very competitive. I mean, our J1, you know, was cheaper. And then obviously over time, and as things evolved, user brought down their prices as well. Yeah. When you said the business kind of, I suppose, it matured in many ways, did that give you an opportunity then to go back into theatre and, and maybe rekindle the passion that you had previously? Was there a stage where, am I right in saying you went in to the panto around 2000 or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I I think the one constant, like panto would be the one genre that I would love most in, okay. in theatre. Um, and I think having either performed in them or written them or directed them, I think I've probably done a, a, over 30 at this point. Okay. Uh, when I was 29, I got asked to do Panto in The Everyman by Catherine yeah. Man Buckley. And that was Puss in Boots. As Luckily, a lead role? Uh, yes. Yeah. Always playing the baddie. Okay. So either the baddie or an ugly sister. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so and how did you juggle that with the day job? I was incredibly lucky. Michael... Dorley and Shandon um, was very gracious. He gave me the time because, again, Shandon wasn't a nine to five for me, but I'd often be there until nine, ten, eleven o'clock. And I sometimes in the early days, I would have pulled all nighters. Okay. I would have been in there, you know, 24 hours. Um, and I did that quite a lot. And he knew you were doing that. And he knew it. Yeah. yeah. I never asked for anything extra. I just wanted to do it. I didn't want to leave until the job was finished. So. Obviously, like the payback for me was that he would give me that time to... A couple uh, of weeks. I, I presume, yeah, yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I would still tip away. And unfortunately, there were the days as well when, you know, we didn't really have, you know, a Wi-Fi and things like that. So, mm. I mean, I would have had to physically go into the office to catch up with work or do it at home. But it never really impacted on my day job. Okay. So I did three pantos back to back in The Everyman. And then Brian Flynn, God rest him, um, he asked me would I come over to the Opera House um, and I did Babes in the Wood that year I played the, the Sheriff of Rottingham I did about five or six on the trot I took a break for a year and then I went back for another two and then unfortunately poor Brian passed away and then I was asked by the Opera House would I be interested in, in filling his shoes and directing the show and Brian had done a, an amazing job and kind of changing the perspective of the panto kind of making it very like West End am I right in saying that a kind of absolutely things had changed yeah it had yeah, gone yeah. a different level Cork had become very professional all of a sudden absolutely I mean he had really pushed the envelope Um, he was incredibly creative like if he had a budget of uh, of a thousand quid I mean yeah. it would still look West End okay it was in his his intention to detail was incredible he was he was phenomenal and no two pantos were ever the same yeah. They all looked different. They all sounded different. But he tended to work with the same people a lot. Yeah. So if you if you delivered for him and you were a team player, invariably you would be asked back again. Yeah. You know, so he surrounded him by people, both creatives on stage and off, that he felt, you know, had the talent for his shows. And up until his passing, were you just, were you an actor or were you writing as well at this point? No, just acting. Just acting. Yeah, yeah. So they asked you to come in then and... Right and direct. So Frank Mackey would have been um, Nanny Nelly for a number of years prior to that. And obviously, look, it would have been a huge job 
for me to come in on my own. So they asked me initially and I said, look, I said, Frank obviously needs to come back. And they were like, oh, my God, absolutely. I mean, you know, yeah. Nanny Nelly is the heart of it. We have to have her there. Um, and I don't know how it evolved because we were talking then about who we, who we would get to write because Brian used to write and direct. Yeah. And then because we knew how his brain worked and we both Frank and myself had contributed stuff to his scripts over the years. We said, look, you know, we, we there was no writer that we could think of off yeah. the top of our head. We Brian's humor and our humor were very similar. So we said, look, can we give it a go? Yeah. Um, they were very receptive to that. That first year was The Sleeping Beauty. And look, it took us six months to write it. I mean, again, correctly. Joyce probably had Ulysses written in short in a shorter period of time, but I mean, yeah. it just we, we you know went. There's a lot of pressure though to fill shoes of that magnitude in many ways because it was so successful. I'd imagine to go in and your first show, like you weren't starting in a small theatre, you were going straight into the opera house. Yeah, yeah. Oh God, look, there were big shoes to fill certainly. But Frank and myself kind of complement each other very yeah. well. Our our sense of humour is very similar. And, you know, we're, both of us aren't precious enough that if I write a gag or he writes a gag and if I say to him, I don't think that's going to work or vice versa, you know, it comes out or we'll try it okay. you know, in rehearsal. And if it doesn't work, it comes out. So, you know, we've got a kind of a good kind of formula now yeah, that's yeah, kind of worked yeah. for us for the last. I mean, this would have been our we would have done Sleeping Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, Cinderella, Snow White, Aladdin, Peter Pan. Well, obviously had to take a break last year because of um, obviously yeah. COVID or whatever. But look, we we did an online presentation and we're back this year then with a kind of a 75 minute original tale, Nanny Nelly's Adventures in, in Pantoland. And look, we get everyone involved. So it's 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 a nice fairy tale. But the production levels are extremely high. Are you always kind of looking to see, I want to make this one better than the last one? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, we're very lucky. And I special mention to Rory Murphy, who, who's been our producer for the last number of years, because obviously, look, they, we, we get a free hand or free reign to do whatever we wish, you know. But obviously things cost money mm-hmm. and the budgets have gone up and up and up every year. I mean, like they're really good to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm kind of on bended knees sometimes going, please, I want to put this effect in yeah. or I want to, I want, want an extra set of costumes for this or whatever it is. And thankfully, they always come up trumps. And I think it pays off because every year we're adding shows. It sells out more quickly every single year, yeah. you know. So the production levels and the ante, you know, go up every year. Yeah. I think the audience expectation goes up every year. Yeah. Obviously, there was pent up demand. The fact that we didn't have any presentation last year. Yeah. But the website cl- crashed the first day uh, that tickets went on sale. There was a queue right around the, bro- the block. I mean, Eileen in the Opera House would say to me that the first day that it was open, they, it was the busiest, busiest day in, in box office history in the Opera House in terms oh. of what was taken in and the amount of bookings or whatever that were processed. People missed it that much. Yeah. It's part of Cork, you know. It is, it's, like, yeah. as you said, as as a teenager, that was your one visit to the theatre, let's say, yeah. every year. Yeah. I'm sure that, that must be the case for so many other people. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's like spice beef at Christmas. You know, it's, you you, you yeah. got to have it. Yeah, it's it's part of it. So, like, as that was growing... Did you kind of say to yourself then, I want to do this kind of more full time? Did you you kind of make a call that I want to get into the arts on a permanent basis and move away from the travel? Because am I right in saying around kind of 2013, 14 or 15 that you, you bought the Mon- bought into the Montforts? Probably early. I'm, I, think I'm early nearly, I think I'm nearly in there. 10 years, Whoa. I think. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I turned 50 a couple of weeks ago. So it was when I was 40. Happy birthday. Thanks very much. <laughs> you look well for 50 I'm telling you <laughs> I wish so I was kind of coming to a crossroads to be quite honest I was really enjoying my time in Shandon and yeah, yeah I had opportunities to develop other bits and pieces you know we were the first we developed a new holiday program for the over 55s okay I developed um, a tour operation to India um, I had been working on one to the to the Caribbean uh, the cruising business had improved massively for us. So, you know, I had kind of moved away a little bit from the student side of things because that was kind of looking after itself. And I was looking after kind of product development for other areas within the company. Yeah. So um, Michael was still very much at the helm. The business was on a very solid footing. And I made an approach and I asked him because there was nowhere else that I could go in Cork in terms of I was in a really good job. I loved what I did. You know, I was senior management. There was no one else in Cork within the travel business that could offer me that type of role. So if I was to go anywhere, it would have been to Dublin and I did not want to leave Cork. 
So I approached him to see if, you know, and I wanted something myself. I wanted, yeah. you know, I didn't want to always be an employee. So yeah. I went to him and asked him, would he be interested in me becoming a director or whatever, and that I could maybe buy into the company or whatever. And while in principle, he said, yes, absolutely. I love it. And you're an integral part of the business. He said, it's a family business. You know, I want to keep it within the family because he had six or I think six sons um, and he wanted to keep it in the family. Okay. So um, that was fine and I accepted it. But I knew that, you know, my time there was coming to an end because, you know, I, I kind of felt I'd, I'd, I'd been there 16 years at that point and I had felt that I'd, I'd kind of done everything that I could possibly do. Yeah. And the only other thing that I knew was drama and theatre and so on. So obviously, look, I had still maintained my connection with Monfords throughout the years, um, whether it was doing a little bit of teaching for them or directing a show. So I was still very much involved. So one day I, I rang Eileen Nolan. And Eileen would have set up the business initially, would she? Yeah. So we're 60 years old next year in, in 2022. Yeah. So we would, this would have been in around the 50th year or whatever. Yeah. So I made the call and I said to her, look, I'm looking for a new opportunity. I'm wondering, would you be interested? And people had said this for me for years, that you should have get involved in Montfort's, that she'd welcome you or whatever. And I'm like, no, I think, look, she wants it for herself. Not wants it for herself, but yeah. look, you know, you know, maybe there's someone else who's heir to the tr throne or whatever. Yeah. So I rang her and I said, look, I'm looking for a new business opportunity. Would you be interested in, in taking on a partner? And she said, yes, I would, absolutely. Uh, but she said, the only thing that I'll insist upon is that we keep the name. And I said, well, Eileen, it's the name that I want because the name is synonymous with the best theatrical training in Cork. Yeah. It's the equivalent of the Billy Barrys in Dublin. So absolutely, so it's the name that I want. pupils and everything, I'd imagine. Absolutely. I mean, Michael McCarthy, Irene Warren, Alf McCarthy, you know, people who had their own, you know, Catherine Ann Buckley, Marion Wyatt, all people who went on to set up their own schools. I mean, yeah. the list is endless. Norma Sheehan, who we see on Bridget and Eamon. Yeah. Ailish and Elaine Simmons, who did Waterloo Road and various other TV things in, in, in the UK. You know, it's huge. The Monfords, while the name was very, very strong and, and very well known, it, like I suppose any brand, Coke, Nike, Adidas, whatever, you still have to, you, you still have to take care of the brand. You still have to take care of marketing. It has to be a constant. Yeah. So I think that what had happened over the years was I knew the product was really, really strong. Um, I knew the teaching was excellent, but they weren't getting out there. They weren't promoting themselves. Um, and as a result, I think a lot of people felt that the Montfort's had gone, you know. And there was an emergence of a lot of other schools at the same time, I'd imagine. There was. Yeah, yeah. Um, with, with nearly sometimes better facilities as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, CADA, Catherine Ann Buckley, yeah. she opened a state-of-the-art facility on Pine Street yeah. um, in the city centre. Yeah. You had the likes of Irene Warren and Sinead Murphy who ha who were using the premises That's up right. in um, the Furkin Crane. Yeah. Uh, Declan and Corrine Wolf had their own yeah. premises in Dosco. Yeah. You know, whereas, you know, 10 years prior to that, you know, maybe maybe five, six years prior to that, Montford's would have been the dominant force. Yes. If you were sending your kids anywhere in Cork, you were sending them to Montford's. It would seem kind of like the, the you know, it was the, the Champions League if we were to put it into a sports tournament. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. it was the top tier, like it was the big club. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But again, I suppose, look, I mean, Eileen came from, you know, when she she would have been a pioneer at the time. So mm. when she set up Montfort's, there was nowhere else to go. Yeah. So people would naturally gravitate towards Montfort's uh, because there wasn't a choice. And, you know, she had built up an extraordinary business over the years, um, which was very, very healthy and doing very well. But again, as you said, you had the emergence of these other schools yeah. who, again, were probably a little bit more. Um, hip in terms of um, what they were maybe teaching to a degree, the premises that they were in, but they were obviously marketing themselves a hell of a lot better than, than yeah. the Montfords were. Yeah. Um, we were kind of relying on kind of word of mouth and that's sometimes that's just not enough. I mean, it's wonderful, mm. but you know, you need to balance it at the same time with some kind of paid offline and online advertising. Yeah. I suppose when I came on board, there was two things that I wanted to do immediately. I wanted to find a new premises they had a website, but again, the the, the, the website, there was no uh, in, interaction there at all. There was no yeah. online booking facility or whatever. We were in the premises in Thompson House on um, Curtin Street. Yeah. And we found a premises down in Penrose Wharf. So we went in there. I think we might have had maybe two and a half, maybe 3,000 square feet, something like that. 
So that would have been the new hub, the new yeah. center. Yeah. Um, but then we would have been operating in, I think, about, well, we have about 13 outside studios now in the likes of Blarney, Middleton, Fomoy, places like that. So they, they were all operating anyway. But we needed that central um, studio that would operate kind of six days a week. Yeah. And then, obviously, the, the website was the next thing. And again, because I had been involved in building lots of websites in Shannon Travel, I had a very clear idea yeah. on what I was looking for. And did you rebrand as well at the time? Um, or did you kind of enhance the brand? Might be a better way of saying it in terms of like the logo, the colors. Am I right? It just looked a bit glossier. It did, yeah. yeah. We went back and look, I, you know, like I went to a professional marketing company, got a new logo designed. Yeah. You know, we did a lot of brochure drops. I did uh, billboard ads. I yeah. did a lot of um, online advertising. Some radio um, ads and things like radio that. Radio ads, yeah. yeah, yeah. I suppose the big thing for, for me was that, look, I, I knew I had to spend, you know, a sizable amount of cash in the first couple of years. No, I still maintain a, you know, a presence marketing-wise every year. But I tried to box clever a little bit. So what I did was, you know, Sinead Dunphy, who's got her own um, marketing company, Eventy, yeah. she kind of in the early days had, gave, gave me an, all, an awful lot of help and support. I was well able to write a PR piece myself. Yeah. But I didn't have the connections in the media to get it in where she did. Yes. Um, and instead of me going away and spending, you know, 15 grand or anything up to three grand to get um, an ad in the uh, Irish Examiner or the Evening Echo, I would spend a couple of hundred quid getting a really nice photograph of some kids in costume um, yeah. and getting a professional photographer in to take yeah. that photograph for yeah. me and then getting me the equivalent of, of three grand's worth of advertising yeah. on the back page of the Examiner, yeah. you know. Um, so I was taking a lot of photographs. Again, I suppose back then, Facebook was really the only social media outlet that we were engaging with. Yeah. Um, because again, that would have been our demographic. Parents would have been engaged in, in Facebook. So you know, we were fairly prolific there. We were always throwing up photographs. We were always putting up, you know, news bites and stories and things like that. So I suppose the long and the short of it is that, look, when I came in, there was 400 kids on the books. You know, and today, 10 years later, we've about 1,800, Whoa. you know. Um, but it's, you know, you can do all the marketing. You can throw all that stuff at it. But I have, you know, 23 staff, half full-time, half part-time, but all brilliant at what they do. Yeah. All loving what they do. All totally committed. Yeah. And, the, and I never saw that more than the last four months where... Obviously, you know, you've got the, the, the prevalence of COVID or whatever, where we would have had teachers who were out, you know, if you've got a tickle in your throat, yeah. anything at all, you just can't come in. Yes. So we had people supporting each other 24-7. Yeah. And, you know, thankfully, I run 178 classes a week. And in the, the last three months, there's one day in McCroom, one Tuesday, four hours out there, they were the only classes that I had to cancel. Everyone helped each other, supported each other. It's been ridiculously challenging, as you can imagine. But I've got an incredible team and I bang on about it all the time to them and to the parents. And, you know, and but it's true. You know, I'm very, very lucky. And I have some people like Valerie O'Leary who taught me way back when. And she's still she's still there. Yeah. Yeah. She still teaches for a stone in Fomoy. And she's been there now 40 years. Yeah. And like last year must have been really tough. Like. You were closed literally the whole year, were you? And yeah. Like from March onwards, it just shut down. Yeah, I mean, we, we closed. I think everyone, when we got that, you know, when Leo Vratker made that address um, on 6 o'clock news, we all thought, that's great. A couple of weeks off, or a couple of yeah, days off. Back after exactly. Yeah. So I was quite happy to, to take a little step back for a couple of days or a week or whatever it is. Um, and then obviously we all realized how serious things were yeah. going to war and how long this potentially could run for. So a lot of schools decided to transfer their term or put their term online. Yeah. That was something that I was not comfortable with in terms of we were paid to deliver to deliver a service in person and that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. And look, you know, I mean, obviously, look, you know, it, it was a huge financial decision yeah. for me to say that, OK, I'm going to freeze the term, but I am going to offer classes online and I'm going to do it for free um, in order to engage the kids and keep, you know, Montford's relevant. And mm. um, so I did that. And it was great for us because, it, it, OK, it was great for me and for the teachers, first of all, because we had a focus. Yeah. So we were offering 
classes six, seven days a week because, again, whether it was Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, every day was the same. Kids were off school. It was Groundhog Day constantly. Yeah. And we did manage to open during the summertime. So we offered these intensives where kids could come in and do, you know, three or four hour blocks. Okay. Um, so you had the choice of using your credits mm. to do these intensives mm. or transfer them to September. So it was an, admi- an administ- administrative nightmare yeah. for the girls in my office who were looking after all that because it wasn't as clean as, okay, I'm paying my 160 euros or whatever it is. This is for my six, 15 weeks. Do yeah. my 15 weeks. Yeah. Term finishes. I pay my next 160. There's my 15 yes. weeks. All nice and easy to do. Yeah. So there were so many variables and so many differences between what people wanted to do. It was just an absolute nightmare. Uh, but look, we had to make it work and we had to make, you know, we needed to be all things to all men to try and appease everybody. No, not appease everyone because everyone was happy. Everyone supported us. But just that there was enough options there for the parents and the students. If the summer thing didn't suit them, that their credits would be carried forward to September or whatever. Yeah. So a huge chunk of students used their credits during um, the summertime. And then we came back in September and I think we got three weeks yeah. and then it all shut down again. So, again, some schools went online. And look, I take my hat off to those people who wanted to do that. Mm. And if they had the engagement um, from the, their parents and, and pupils, great, fantastic. It was never going to be for me. I had no interest in doing it. The staff had no interest in doing it. They wanted to teach in person. So we changed tack a little bit. And what we did was we continued to offer more classes online. At that point, not as many. We'll say during the first lockdown, we might have been doing maybe five or six classes a day. At this point, we might have been down to three yeah. because the the novelty of Zoom and online had diminished hugely. Yeah. People yeah. didn't want to engage with it anymore. Yeah. So what we did was we did a couple of classes every day. But what I suppose the, what we did differently was at the weekends, then we did master classes with cast members from West End shows. Yeah. So people that we normally would never get because they're doing eight shows a week yeah, or they wouldn't do yeah, it for the yeah. type of money that we were offering or yeah. whatever. But because they had nothing, we were getting, you know, lead actors from Mary Poppins, Hamilton, Les Mis, you know, everything. So we do one on Saturday for the junior kids, you know, for the kids probably like kind of seven to 11. Yeah. And then on Sundays for the, we say the secondary school kids. Yeah. And they were great. We were getting 150, 200 kids coming online for each session or whatever. And we did that October, November, December, January. Um, and then we kind of wrapped that up then after that. And we just went back then again to offering a couple of classes here and there. What we did was we did some drama exams online. So we would be affiliated to Lambda for the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. So we would have taught via Zoom one on one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we would have had a couple of hundred kids who would have done acting exams then in May. And then during the summer, we did our summer camps and we were open for a, port for a chunk of those. And that was it. Then we went back in September. And thankfully, we've been open ever since, you know. And, you know, you said, you know, you, you got into this partnership. Is Eileen still active on uh, in, in, in terms of the business? Or has she stepped back now and kind of left you kind of just trying to She stepped back. I mean, again, physically, she wouldn't be as able as she was. Yes. Mentally, she is still as sharp as ever. Okay. So I would speak with her probably once, twice a week. And obviously pre-COVID, I would have been up and see her, you know, once a week or whatever it is. I mean, out of courtesy to her, I keep her informed about everything that goes on. Yeah. And, you know, she's still an inspiration to me to this day. Incredible woman very caring of the business and the people involved and the students obviously a very good businesswoman to have built a business that lasted that long as well you know 50 years before you came in absolutely yeah yeah I mean we did a, uh, she did an um, an article or an interview recently with Linda Kenny for the Echo yeah and she spoke about you know back in the uh, I think the early 70s that she was teaching she used to travel literally from school to school to school sometimes three or four schools in a day yeah and she needed a venue for her after school classes. So she was down in a um, school it was, whatever, but they had an old prefab or a prefab that they no longer needed, mm. like a port cabin. Yeah. Which she bought and that lives in her house now in the garden and it's still there 
And that's where the offices, the admin offices, where Oni and Margaret, they, they, they look after the administration. Are they still business. based in near her house? They're still there, yeah, in her garden. Yeah. And we run classes in that prefab um, six days a week. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. And the same woman back in the 60s, or early 70s, sorry, chartered a plane to bring the Montfords from Cork to Blackpool to participate in a choral verse competition, yeah. you know. I mean, but you wouldn't even do that now. No. Let alone back in the, the early 70s. But all those little bits helped build that brand. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which made it synonymous with theatre and Cork then. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But your marketing mind then, what like one of the things that I found really interesting was when you said where ago you were in Penrose Wharf, but then you moved to Kinsale Road. Yeah. That was a very clever move in terms of going right opposite Smith's in many ways. Yeah. Was that a strategic decision? I would love to say it was, but it wasn't. <laughs> um, what had happened was we had kind of outgrown um, Penrose Wharf. Okay. I was looking for additional space below, but it just wasn't available to me. I was like, okay, this, is, this ain't happening for me. I need someone to find me a place. So I approached an auctioneer and said, look, I'll pay you the commission but I need you to find me something. So this place came up, that place came up, the other place came up and they just, the, the fit wasn't right. There either wasn't enough parking yeah. or it wasn't central enough. Mm-hmm. And then he said to me, Unit 2 Southerling Business Bar across from Smith's Toys is available. And I was like, what are you joking me? Okay. So what we went, it was 7,000 square feet um, over two floors. Yeah. And it was the perfect fit. The ground floor Worked out perfectly in terms of I needed vocal studios for three teachers. There was three rooms there. Yeah. I needed a costume room. To, we had about 20,000 plus costumes. I needed a big, huge room for those. That was there. There was a reception there. There was a studio on the ground floor. There was um, uh, wheelchair accessible toilets. Yeah. Um, and then the first floor, the, these all these offices would have been used by HSC previously. So the fir- yeah. the first floor then would have been kind of uh, a labyrinth of tiny offices and corridors. Yeah. So we had to strip everything out, knock every wall and we've got two purpose-built studios up there, units or toilets, a um, couple of prop rooms, staff room. We had a study room as well at one point but that now is fortunately the isolation room okay. given these COVID times yeah. um, and it's worked perfectly. So we're there, we're there six years. Again, we're at the point where we started bursting at the seams there um, two years ago, pre-COVID. So we have a great relationship with women's fitness. Okay, yeah, which are in the same area, yeah. Yeah, so they're just a couple of doors down and it's the perfect marriage because their busiest days would be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And it's your quiet days. And there are quiet days, so our busy days then are Friday and Saturday. Yeah. So we have access to their studios on a Friday and all day Saturday, which is perfect. So, um, you know, I was able to, there was a huge demand for, for classes on Friday and Saturdays, but I just had nowhere to put people. Um, so it's the, it's, the, it's the perfect marriage. And have you ever thought about going outside of Cork with the Monfort brand? Or? At one point, I, I kind of thought, I, you know, I, you know I, I looked at the idea of maybe looking at a franchise option or whatever mm. it is. And then... I think there's a lot of people who do it very, very well in terms of what the type of business that we're in. There's a lot yeah. of people who do it really, really well and there's an awful lot of people who do it very badly. Yeah. And I think the people who do it really, really well have a very good business model so they wouldn't be interested in taking our business. And I think the people who really who do it really, really badly think they probably do it well so wouldn't be interested in getting, you know, benefiting from, you know, I suppose the, the, the back-end services that we can offer, the teacher training that we offer, yeah. you know, online booking capabilities, things like that. And I kind of felt, you know, I, you know, I started a family and it's still, you know, it's still a seven day a week business for me, it, you know, with, with those kind of numbers in terms of the amount of kids that we have coming to the school and the, you know, the 23 or whatever it is on staff, there's an awful lot to be done. I still like to teach a bit. Um, I can't teach as, as much as I would like anymore just because of the, the day-to-day admin that, that, that I'm involved in. And again, because look, we're always trying to plan ahead and do different shows and things. Yeah. I mean, I try to direct the shows in the school as much as possible so that I, you know, I'm engaged with the kids and I know who the kids are. Yeah. But I think we're at the point, you know, you know, we've been approached by, you know, one or two kind of locations. Would you open up a studio down here or put another one there? We're kind of, I, I, we're kind of maxed out. Okay. I don't want to take any more on 
happy with the numbers that we have. I would have a very good idea what's happening in every studio on a particular day of the week. You know, yeah. there's goals that need to be achieved within a term. We, we do. So whatever subject you do, there's optional exams there, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. so that it's not a case that you're kind of drifting in the wind a bit. Mm. That all, you know, that you might have, you know, if there was a teacher, Ash, I want, you know, I want to do anything this week. No, you know, I'll do a bit of this or a bit of that, whatever. There's structure there. You know, uh, we have planned out what needs to happen. We have the structure of every class that a teacher needs to follow. Now, obviously, within that, there is autonomy and room to do whatever you need to do as well. But, you know, the basic structure needs to be followed and everyone needs to be given the option to do an exam. And we have a good take up on it. Yeah, I'd like, I, I want people to leave with something at the end that they've got their grade eight gold medal in acting or speech yeah. and drama, or they've got their grade eight with in um, singing with the London College of Music. Mm. You know, of course, it's all about fun and recreation and, um, you know, meeting new friends and yeah. so on. But it's nice to develop then as, as, as a performer as well. And I'm um, guessing some of them go on and take it on as a career. Yeah, I mean, we have a couple of people every year. You know, yeah. who go to the Lear or who go to um, various different colleges in the UK or, or who will stay here at home. We have yeah. lots of students who've gone in and done the drama and theatre studies course in the School of Music yeah. and the new uh, musical theatre course in there. So it's great to see them going on further, yeah. you know. And it must be great then for you to see the likes of those end up on TV or if you go to the West End and see some past pupils on the stage there. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Claire O'Leary now, past people of ours, is just, she's in Les Mis in the West Whoa. End. Now, I haven't got an opportunity to go over to see her now yet. But it's great. They, a lot of them still keep in contact. Yeah. They tell us what they're up to, what they're doing. And do they drop in if they're home? Oh, they do. Yeah. yeah. And we always There's a bit that. of a buzz with the kids yeah. too, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the panto is is continuing this year, despite the regulations and the half half the audience it's 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 continuing it is um i mean look the the opera house made a very brave decision yeah to run it um i mean i know there's government subsidies and grants available they could have taken the easy option and decided not Can't to run it, it. Yeah. yeah so we were pretty much i think there was a 92 93% of the run was sold out before the restrictions were announced We've added an extra 26 shows Whoa. in order to reaccommodate um, all those people who um, can't attend the show that they've booked. Yes. But we're up and running. And are you excited to be back? I am. Like, I, do. I am. I really, really am. Yeah. It's wonderful to be back in the theatre. It's great to hear the reaction from the kids. Mm. I think that the sense of fun and the enjoyment and the engagement is still there. But for me, and I think obviously, you know, I mean, I, it, I, I'm not financially affected by it at all. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm the hired help. I go in, I do my job, I get paid for it. But it must, must be just soul destroying for the building to, yes. to look out and see, um, you know, 450 odd people or whatever. And it's, it's the cash code for the year for, for the opera house. It, 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 it helps provide all those other shows in many ways. Absolutely. It? Yeah. It yeah. subsidizes a lot yeah, of other shows that yeah, we never yeah. get to go on. Completely. For every, every theatre around the country. So I have two final questions for you, Trevor. I, I ask everybody this on, uh, on the podcast. The first one is, what advice would you give another brand in terms of helping them to build it? Because you, you've built, in particular, I'm, I'm thinking of what you did with, with Say It. That was exciting in terms of... You know, yeah, God. And then rebuilding the Monfort brand. Yeah. Jeez, I don't know if they're all kind of cliche answers or whatever. I mean, I think you've got to work damn hard. Yeah. You know, I think you've got to look... I mean, I've never been afraid of work. Yeah. Ever. And I know that, again, that might sound, oh, God, well, that's, that's just all. But I mean, my wife kills me for working so hard. Yeah. You know, I think obviously, you know, marketing is massively important. Never lose focus of that. Always, no matter how busy you are. I mean, look, I'm full. You know, I don't need any more students. I can't take any more students, but yeah. I will still market the hell out of the business. Yeah. You know. And the, the other question I have is what tip would you give an individual? And I'm thinking in particular of that maybe young person that we'd have a lot of young people listen to this podcast as well and some of them might have a real interest in something outside of maybe what they study and you know what tip would you give them in terms of merging that business world with the with with maybe the hobby that they have because that's exactly what I think you've done in terms of you've eventually I suppose put a, a pathway there where you merge the arts and business together any advice for those I think like you know I think if you're determined yeah and again, I think the fact that if it, 
I think you're more than likely going to succeed or have a better chance of su- succeeding if you want to drive on a business that like is, is a hobby or something that you that you really are interested in. Mm. No point in taking kind of not the safe route, but you know, I know there's money in coffee or I know there's money in being a barber or whatever it is. So look, that that's what I'm going to go for. You know, I mean, I had the expertise. Uh, you know, I mean, I brought my drama into my career in travel and obviously now you know that's that, that's what I'm using 100% in what I'm doing now um, God that's 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 a tough question I'm a bit stuck I put you on the spot you did you did I caught you for words you Amanda did. has many words I've caught you <laughs> <laughs> like if it, I suppose did you see a, a route like I mean in many ways it was probably you'd have to look for opportunities and you have to kind of maybe shelve your your passion for a while and then come back to it would, would that be the case because uh, is that kind of what you did? Did you have I to did, kind of build yeah, credibility look, before you could go back into it and actually make it successful and take, um, or do you have to take risks? I think you have to take risks. You do, yeah. Um, and look, in terms of what I do when I'm looking at a, like, I think you, you always have to learn. Yeah. I mean, I go to see shows. I travel to London four or five times a year. My wife kills me. No, yeah. no she's very good to me because she lets me go. Yeah. But I, I'll go. I won't meet anybody when I'm there. But I'll go to two or three shows if I can in a day and jot on a couple of notes and say, that was good. I like that. Or that's a song now that I think we can use in um, Montfort's. Yeah. Uh, that's a drama scene that I think that I can use in a drama class. Um, so I think you continually have to learn. You continue have to evolve. I mean, um, I mean, I read an awful lot, you know, any of the kind of papers and magazines that come out that are specifically for drama teachers or whatever. I don't think you can ever kind of sit back on your laurels. You always need to be that one step ahead. And were and you doing that throughout the years? Always. So that was yeah. probably, that, that definitely helped you then in terms Both of completely. Make, making a career for, for yourself on a full-time basis. Yeah. And I was always looking at what my competitors were doing. I mean, I think a lot of people are a little bit focused. Mm. They've got the blinkers on and they go, okay, look what I'm doing. I'm doing well. Yeah. I think I'm, you know, I don't need to learn from anybody else. But I look what everybody is doing around me in Cork and in Dublin and in the UK. You know, there's an awful lot of drama schools, people performing arts schools that are very similar to mine. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, oh, I like that. I could, you know, I, I can refine that a little bit or I can change it to suit my business model. Yeah. Um, so... You know, and I do spend time and I haven't been able to do it now for a while, but I know there's going to, uh, I, I try um, at twice a year where I'll turn off the phone um, and I'll shut down my email um, and I'll lock myself in the office um, and I'll just have a think and I'll say, okay, right, so I'm doing acro, I'm doing drama, um, I'm doing music theatre, I'm doing singing. Okay, how can I do it a little bit better? Or is there another product that um, I think would work in Cork, mm. another, another discipline in the arts? Or I will look and I will think, okay, right, I want to do a musical now next year. What will I do? And then I might listen to five or six or half a dozen. So there's, there's times where I have to have that downtime where, you know, I will turn off the phone. I won't allow an email to come through. Um, and I normally do it on a Sunday. When I'm down in the studio, mm. when there is nobody present, um, and I did that one back in the days when I was in Chandon Travel as well. So things like you know one of the things that I had mentioned as well, which was hugely popular for us back in the day, was we used to do these two center flights, mm. um, where okay you'd fly into New York, you'd work in New York for the summer, but that would have been we classed that as your stopover. Your final destination was San Francisco. Yeah. You do your three month stopover in New York, you fly to San Francisco for your two week holiday at the end, and then you fly home. Okay. So that was one of the things. I was sitting down one day and I was going, you know, okay, how can I make it a bit more attractive? If I was on my J1 now, what do I do at the end? I do a holiday. Um, and again, that was something. So we approached an airline, United Airlines at the time. They had never done that kind of thing that they would do, that your stopover, which is normally like 24 hours or a day or two, but we wanted it to be a stopover for up to like three or four months. Yeah. Um, and they eventually, you know, agreed to it or whatever. And it was massively popular. Um, everyone at that point, Aer Lingus would have carried probably 80% of our, our traffic, Virgin 10%, United Airlines 10%. And then the whole thing was reversed. Whoa. United ended up carrying about 60%, Aer Lingus 20, maybe 30%, Virgin 10%, you know. Um, because people 
just loved the idea of getting two a two centre break or a two centre holiday or whatever uh, while on their J1 um, and that all came from just yeah switching off yeah and giving yourself time to think yeah and I'm sure you'll be doing that after the, the run of Pantos in January at some point well this is it we'll have to think about what's going to happen next Christmas what we're going to do yeah well, I'm looking forward to seeing the Panto myself hopefully in the next few weeks I, I do have tickets so I'm looking forward ah, to seeing great. it and uh, wish you all the best with the Monforts I'm looking forward to see what you do with the 60th uh, anniversary Cheers, next year thanks a million Trevor for thanks coming thanks very in. much Cheers thank you thanks for listening to this week's episode of the 24 Stories podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show and get in touch with us on Facebook Instagram Twitter and LinkedIn at 24 Stories Tribe I'll be back next week with a brand new guest. 